0: Welcome to episode 22 of the Rainbow Pridecast. I'm your host, Danielle Dupuy, and I use the pronouns she, her, hers. Today, I'm joined by Jay
1: Aaron Hall from Teaching Tolerance. Welcome, Jay. Thank you. And I use the pronouns they and them, and I'm in Montgomery, Alabama.
0: Awesome. Montgomery, Alabama. Is it hot there right now?
1: It is unspeakably hot, yes. (laughs) It's
0: kind of ridiculous here in Maryland, too. Like, super sweat humid disgustingness yeah you just
1: gotta like mop your face with a towel every time you leave.
0: (laughs) (laughs) pretty much we got those like little cooling towel things now that we uh wear when we go out but i feel like it makes us a little wimpier so (laughs) um tell us a little bit about your work um with teaching tolerance and you're the grants coordinator there now
1: yeah, so I think my official title is the School-Based Programming and Grants Manager. So I um, am the person who directly interfaces with schools and the programs we have there. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, a lot of my work is um, managing the Social Justice Educator Grants Project. Um, so we you know, review applications and just try to support really awesome anti-bias projects. And oftentimes those are specifically tailored to the community, so it's sort of You know by that community and for them Um, Mm -hmm. so sometimes we have like queer proms or you know um, conferences for um, young you know girls of color and their empowerment Um, sometimes we do some curriculum development around kind of you know um, going back and reteaching history that wasn't taught teaching slavery in a culturally competent, accurate way, um, things like that. So it kind of runs a gamut. Um, And then we're also, I help out with some other things. I um, write stories about the awesome grant projects, which is really fun. And then um, we're also working on um, a a voting project for the presidential election season. So trying to get um, voter registration drives held in schools. And then also working on an art for social justice kind of contest um, where educators can teach lessons about social justice or anti-bias education. And then the students make art, make posters in any medium, um, kind of responding to the lessons. And then the winner of the challenge um, gets their art reproduced and redistributed to all the participating classrooms. So that's really cool. Yeah.
0: I'll have to definitely pass that along. Um, We just featured uh, HOKO uh, for Justice um, has been doing a lot with trying to make uh, big changes in Howard County and beyond. And um, Hmm. they they recently held a rally and it's all youth-led. So it's been really amazing to kind of watch them grow and uh, do different things. So I'll definitely pass on the information to them as well. Yeah, please do. Um, I imagine that um, with all that has been going on recently um that you guys are getting gonna be very busy with Mm -hmm. a lot of your lessons and things Mm -hmm. yeah Um, yeah for returning teachers and students for that matter um what I guess what should they do like as they are re-entering the classroom so to speak I mean some of us are going back virtually and some Mm -hmm. face-to-face um, I know this is really on everybody's mind, is how do I make sure that what I'm teaching students is accurate, is meaningful, and really um, uh, demonstrates a uh, a care
1: and accuracy for um, history? hmm Yeah, I think, you know, in regard to the pandemic, it's totally unprecedented and you know, it's nothing we've ever seen before. And a Teaching Tolerance, we always take the equity angle. Um, and there's huge equity ramifications, right, in terms of um, what, you know, um, kids' experiences are like at home. Um, like you mentioned earlier, uh, if you know, the student is LGBTQ um, and they're younger and they might be in the earlier stages of coming out and they might not be out at home. Um, that's a really, you know, huge implication. Um, I've talked to a teacher who works at a school for um, students who are deaf and those students, some of their parents or their caregivers don't sign. Um, so they actually don't have equitable language access. Um, they have really basic things like having conversations Um and so all these things are really affecting students in such a like, wide variety of ways that there's no real one size fits all. Um, and, and students as well as, you know, we all are going through a lot. So I think it's, it's really important to check in with students in a meaningful way to take it slow and take time and um, figure out, you know, just kind of get a sense of what's going on for students and not assume that this is um, this is business as usual Um, And then, you know, in terms of teaching, um, I think it's important, you know, it's important to teach history accurately. And then also as history is unfolding, I think that's a great moment to um, really look at the equity angle and how this is affecting different communities. And obviously there's huge racial disparities um, with the coronavirus and you know, it's impacting low income communities, right, that can't afford to stay at home, you know, that don't necessarily have like a second home. They can just, <laughs> you know, post right. that bad indefinitely. Um mm-hmm. and so, you know, I think it's it's a it's a opportunity to really um, look at the social justice and the equity angle in action. Um and talk about, you know, the differences with students. Um, and I think it's you know, a chance for it to really come alive in a new way. So it's not just, oh, this thing happened in the past, you know, but I think with this coronavirus, we really are kind of making history um, since nothing like it has happened before. So, yeah, I think taking advantage of that, um, yeah, is it, a great idea.
0: Now, um, I know Teaching Tolerance was uh, super supportive of um, Rainbow Conference and um, and funding our um Rainbow Vision Literary Magazine, mm-hmm. um, how many grants does Teaching Tolerance distribute in a year? Do you know?
1: Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think around 50. Um, oh, wow. That's yeah. A yeah. Um, we get a, a large number of applications. Um, our budget was 500000 when we started in 2017, and it's since been cut in half. Um, so we have to cut down um, somewhat, unfortunately. Um, but, yeah, we have we get a lot of applications and it's really fun from my side to just see all the passion and the energy that, um, you know, educators can bring. And even the applications that don't necessarily get funded, it seems like the wheels are really turning and, you know, teachers are um I I get, you know, I get the sense that there's a real need and a desire to approach some of these issues, um, in a way, you know, in a new way, maybe even more than before. And, um, it's a little unfortunate, but when, you know, when crises happen, like, um, after George Floyd was murdered, you know, we really see this sort of like raised consciousness or this sort of waking up, um, Mm -hmm. folks, you know, for whom it might not be like a daily lived reality, um, it is an opportunity for them to say, you know, this isn't acceptable and kind of what can I do? Um, and the grants program is, is one way that they can really get directly involved. And, you know, I, I often workshop ideas with educators and um, sometimes help them narrow it down from a broader idea to something, you know, specifically tailored to their community and their students and, um, you know, what's going to make the most direct impact.
0: Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. And um, for those people that are kind of interested, um, are these grants kind of on a rolling basis or is there an annual deadline?
1: Yep. We, we take applications on a rolling basis. Um, and then the fiscal year does start again, you know, in the fall. So that's sort of the beginning of our um, funding cycle. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's we review applications at the beginning of every month. Um, and, you know, I'm always around to um, talk to folks on the phone or through email and, you know, um, we want to make these grants available and accessible to educators who obviously aren't professional grant writers. Um, but you know, who often just have the best understanding of what students are needing. Um, and those are sometimes the best projects that are already kind of simmering in educators' minds. And, you know, there's this need, um, for, you know, a certain, like a black student union or, you know, um, one project we had a club for students who are deaf and blind who were marginalized within a school for the deaf. Um, so things like that where it's like, educators really think about what is the need that exists within my community and how can the grants program support that?
0: Oh, that's really cool. And where does the where does the funding come from for these grants?
1: It's all supported by donors. Um, yeah, we had a matching grant um, from a foundation for the first couple years. And now that we're back down to 250, um, it's all thanks to the generous and loyal support of the um, donors of the Southern Poverty Law Center. That's awesome. Mm -hmm.
0: And can anybody donate? Like, you know, could somebody say in Maryland donate, like if they wanted to donate, like even if it was just like $25? Is that possible?
1: Yes, it is. Um, Yeah, the SPLC, you know, has um, supporters all over the country. Um, and we have a team that, you know, um, meets with folks or answers any questions. Um, and I believe, and I hope this is the case that you can earmark, earmark a donation. Um, mm-hmm. so, you know, if you wanted to make sure that your $25 went to teaching tolerance educator grants, then you'd be able to work with somebody to make sure that it went to that specific purpose.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Um. Now, have you seen, I mean, I know you said the only look at the grants, like the beginning of each month, have you seen like an increase in requests since COVID started?
1: We have been getting a lot this summer, definitely. Um, you know, we talked about extending grants to meet like the technology needs or um, needs specifically around COVID. Um, mm-hmm. And what we decided is that um we have a community grants program through the larger umbrella of the Southern Poverty Law Center, and so that's kind of um funded more under that. So um Educator Grants is really has a pretty narrow focus and um you know I feel we can have the greatest impact when we're more narrowly focused on you know social justice issues within education. Um so that's not to say that we couldn't, you know, get a grant that addressed equity issues in COVID, obviously, because there are so many of them. Um but uh, an educator or an applicant would want to think through, you know, what the end result will be and, you know, how that's student-centered, what students will be doing. Um, you know, with your project, it was great because it was so clearly created um, and executed by students. So we're looking really looking t- towards that, you know, and what is the ultimate impact on students and how does it improve their experience. Um, so for that reason, we generally don't fund, like, you know, supply costs, unless it's towards, you know, the the greater service of the project. So if you, you know, if an applicant wanted to make a, say, a student, you know, book about um, students sharing their experiences about COVID and, you know, how they were impacted that by that and how their education has impacted by that, then we might be able to fund, say, the cost of making the book, or if they were working with a nonprofit, something like that, um, if it's in service of, you know, kind of an ultimate student-driven deliverable, then. um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I will say um, that with all of the protests going on um, in response to the murder of George Floyd, um, we have gotten a large uptick um, with those applications as well and folks really wanting to, you know, intervene and interrupt um, the cycles of systemic violence and racism. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, and those are coming from all over the country and Um, you know, people of a variety of racial backgrounds. Um, So it's exciting to see that as well.
0: That's really cool. What are some of the, like, uh, most interesting projects that you've seen come across your table?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, we have a um, grants action model directory that we make of some of the um, coolest projects that we've seen and some you know that we hope will be replicated. Um, mm-hmm. So anyone can go on to the tolerance.org website and um, click on grants at the top of the page. And then if you scroll down, it, there's a little button that takes you to the action model directory. Um, mm-hmm. So, and some of the projects in that directory are um, there was one project in Maine where um, the students, I believe they were at an alternative school, um, they learned about the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, and they read books, novels that were chosen, you know, um, that were given awards for their portrayal of uh, individuals with disabilities and that experience. Um, And then they took those experiences and they, um, went out into a park and, um, worked with like a trail crew and redid a trail to make it, um, you know, ADA accessible basically. Um, so that was a cool, yeah. Projects that kind of start with more, you know, learning and processing and self-reflection, you know, and, Uh, teaching tolerance we have these four domains of anti-bias education the first being identity so and they don't have to be in sequence but they can make a sequence you know thinking about your own identity how it was formed and then thinking about the next one of diversity is how that relates to the identity of others how it differs and is also you know what we have in common with others and then um that can lead to justice thinking about you know the injustices of how some identities might be more valued than others um And then the final domain is action. So it's kind of like the what are you going to do about it (laughs) Uh, domain. And so it's always exciting when, you know, the grants themselves kind of um, are live within that domain of action. Um, So, yeah, we had, um, you know, an uh, interview series um, where students interviewed. It was like a little TV show. um, Adults from various marginalized backgrounds or folks who'd had um, a number of difficulties. There was a man who had been in a Japanese internment camp, Um, a Latinx woman talked about her experience uh, being from an immigrant background, Um, there was a young man who identified as trans, Um, and so, uh, yeah, that was called Voices of Hope, so that was a cool, really student-driven project to kind of, um, you know, collect the voices and um, appreciate the diversity of experiences out there. Um, let me see, what were some other ones? Um, there was another one about understanding implicit bias through, through photography, um, where students, you know, they wrote um, something that they thought people mis- misrepresented about them or, um, you know, something that people maybe didn't know about them. Um, and then they, so they wrote that on a chalkboard and then held it up and then a photo was taken of them. Uh, so it's kind of a powerful display of, you know, what you think you see is not necessarily what's really going on. Um, and they looked at photos of uh, a well-known photographer uh, in Minnesota, actually, who kind of um, takes pictures related to implicit bias. And they did this exploration of, you know, what do you see when you look at this picture? Is this really what's going on? What kind of assumptions do we have? Um, yeah. So so those were, those were a few projects. Um, yeah. There was one that we just had about the 1619 project, um, which was, you know, based on the Nicole Hannah-Jones article in the New York Times um, commemorating the 300th, um, you know, uh, not an anniversary, but, you know, 300th year, 300 years ago, slavery began. Um, And students, uh, based on the New York Times article, made different quilts. Um, and, and then displayed them all over the school about um, kind of uh, criminal justice and um, systemic oppression. And these really complex ideas, um, and we're able to display them, you know, in a really visually interesting way. So, yeah, I think it's always exciting when educators take these really complex ideas. Um, another one was there was a book club in third grade called What Gets Normalized?, um, mm-hmm. Looking at children's books and what experience is seen as normal and you know how is it portrayed and and then the students took home those books and read them with their parents and then they had a, a letter writing dialogue where they talked about what how normalcy is portrayed within um, these books and you know these are young kids and I think a lot of adults would assume you know this they're too young they can't have these sorts of conversations but what this teacher found was that they were able to have really sophisticated conversations and that you know, students understand difference and um, the difficulties that can come with that from a really young age, and so it's actually really important to talk about that really as soon as as kids are able to talk. I think. Um, I agree. Yeah. So they don't. You know, um, <laughs> there are many pitfalls of not talking about it. Obviously, to say the yes. least. Yeah.
0: Definitely, I feel like some people. A lot of times, uh, adults try to avoid the conversation rather than having the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um you know? Yeah. uh, And it's hard because we don't want to, I think the immediate reaction always as a parent is I want to protect my child or I want to protect my students from harmful things um, or from harmful views. Um, But at the same time, it's like, they're going to have them at some point, they're going to experience it. Like you can't protect them or shelter them forever. Um, And then if you do, then they're not, you're not educating them to make positive change or choices, um, for themselves and others. Um, if you don't have that conversation, I know my daughter recently, um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, uh, Black Lives Matter signs in our neighborhood. Um, and we put one up as well, uh, in front of our house and, um, we had a discussion. She's like, you know, why are so many people putting up Black Lives Matter, you know, and, mm-hmm. and we had that discussion. And, you know, the first thing that came to her mind, and she just, her eyes started to well up with tears. And she's just like, I, I'm so scared. She's like, now I'm scared for my, you know, my friends um, mm-hmm. who have brown skin, you know, she was very, um, you know, that's the kind of kid she is. And it's just like, on the one hand, it's, it's sad, but on the, at the same token, and I'm just like, yeah, but and that's why you need to be aware that this can this is an issue. And if somebody is saying something unkind, you need to stand up and say something because yeah. um, that's what we should do for each other because uh, we don't want it to turn into something hateful that continues down the line.
1: Um, Yeah, I think there's this really insidious idea of that's just the way that it is. And the longer you wait to have that conversation, the more embedded that idea gets. And so once people, you know, um, reach adulthood... They, it can be hard, I think, to imagine any other way, and you lose kind of lose the ability to see things objectively.
0: Um, mm-hmm.
1: But I think when kids are young, they have a natural ability to see fairness and to see injustice, and so I think it's really yeah powerful to tap into that.
0: And you raise a good point too. Um, it kind of got me thinking about when you're when you're young, your brain is still malleable and able to make new connections and new connections off of those connections. And I feel like when, as we get to be adults and set in our ways, your synapses are all going in one direction and it's difficult to make that turn, you know, that Mm -hmm. U-turn to forge like a new road, roadmap Mm -hmm. essentially. Um, You know, there's a lot of adults in my life, in my life that have not changed one bit, you know, Mm in my 40 years of life, like 41 years of life, like they haven't changed. Like they have always had like the same misconceptions and perceptions of other people. And it's just like, even though you're like, just constantly setting, you know, a better example, it just doesn't change. And I think that's really frustrating is that I think it's just that people, that certain people might not want to change They don't want to be wrong, Um, you know, or it doesn't affect them. So it's really hard for them to see. So I think the more that we can educate kids at a young age, then they'll at least have that experience and that knowledge in their background for when it might come up later in their life. So maybe even if they haven't uh, experienced uh, oppression, um, you know, up until a certain point in their lives, then at least if they've had the discussion and then they can relate to somebody who has, then hopefully that will help them make uh, a compassionate and um, informed decision later, you know?
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think kids are naturally curious about difference in a way that can be very non-judgmental. So I think mm-hmm. it's really good to yeah, um, kind of talk about those things while they're still in that window before those judgments have solidified around the difference and before it becomes kind of, you know, socially unacceptable to talk about it.
0: Mm-hmm. So I was looking a- around a little bit, um, on, on the interweb, um, about you, and I see that you've, Ooh. um, written a couple of, um, pieces, um, per, from a personal perspective, um, that you are a, are you a, you're a practicing Buddhist?
1: Yeah, I do practice meditation, yep.
0: That's awesome. Um, So I'm just curious as to how um, you got into that. Was that, do you have like a family member that practices or was that something that you discovered on your own?
1: I don't, yeah, it was, um, for the most part it was kind of a response as I think it often is in to difficulties that I was having. Um, you know, I came out as genderqueer in college, and then that became non-binary, but um, that was a difficult experience, and, um, you know, being in the middle is it can be a really difficult place to rest, and um, I don't think I was equipped with tools to kind of handle what, you know, society was, um, can throw my way, um, just with kind of basically like a different presentation and a different haircut. Um, you know, but internally I felt the same and, um, but I felt my reality was very different and, um, you know, the way I was perceived and people are very uncomfortable when they can't put you in the male or the female box and all sorts of things happen, you know, um, (laughs) basically, you know, whenever I go into public, it's like, you never really know how you're going to be received or, um, you know, there's all sorts of people have shame or humiliation or um they're just they're not really sure what to do with folks who you know can't easily be put into a box and um yeah when that's kind of the the lived reality you know day after day that definitely takes a a pretty big toll on the nervous system um because For me, I was, you know, trying to um, anticipate how different reactions would go or how I was being perceived and, you know, that sort of double consciousness that W.E.B. Du Bois talks about in in terms of race. But um, I think there's a kernel of truth to it, too. And, um, you know, anytime that you're perceived as other, um, the way that you perceive yourself, it doesn't necessarily match how you're perceived externally. Um, There's a kind of systemic misattunement that happens um, that can, you know, lead to all sorts of, (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. basically head games. And so, yeah, you know, had chronic pain and, um, anxiety and, um, just sort of like in fight or flight mode all the time. And, um, I found meditation to be extremely healing and useful for that, um, you know, among other things, but that was really what, um, made the biggest difference and the biggest impact. And, um, yeah, just sort of allowed me to feel at home, in myself and in my own center and allowed me to kind of let go of the need to be seen in any particular way. And, um, so yeah, that's been a huge part of my own kind of like healing journey. And I think with meditation too, um, the ability to be able to be with your own pain and your own difficulty, um, it cultivates the capacity to be with other people's, um, difficulties. And I think, you know, um, anti-bias is, anti-bias education has a lot to do with, um, trusting, respecting, celebrating other people's experiences and, um, you know, valuing their stories. And even, you know, when they don't match your own or, the, you know, they're, they're not um, from the exact same experience or community, um, there's a sort of implicit appreciation that comes um, and an implicit respect and, you know, just a desire to um, want those people, those students, whoever those people are, to be valued and to be able to thrive. Um, so I think you know the two for me are are pretty intertwined.
0: Hmm. That's really cool. Huh. I know I have always struggled with uh, you know religion um, mm-hmm. because I feel like I feel like our the families that we're born into, it's always like an expectation to be follow in whatever footsteps our parents have, Mm -hmm. you know, um, placed before us. Mm -hmm. And, um, so, you know, it's one of those things where as a kid, you know, you're trying to be respectful to your family by, you know, going to church every, every Sunday and participating in, um, you know, prayer and, and things like that. And then at some point in time, you either truly believe what it is that you've been taught Or you start to realize that there's other things and other ideas and other views out there. And then you, you know, find yourself in a different way. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm not sure what was harder for my mom. (laughs) Was the fact that I was, that I came out to her as, uh, you know, as gay or that I stopped going to church. Right. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, it's, I think it's really hard once you've been raised in one particular religion to find a new path um, mm-hmm. or, you know, or one that you agree with or um, kind of drive with. So I think that's really cool that, um, you know, I mean, I think I could definitely get down with the meditation and uh, Buddhism. I just need to have mm-hmm. enough quiet in my life to be able to do it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, my mom has said, you know, if you want your children to grow up to be religious, then don't raise them in a religious background. And I think that was true in my case. I um, My dad was raised Jewish, and my mom grew up Methodist, and we were a pretty, pretty secular family. Um, so yeah, I think it can really present a hurdle, definitely, and folks have all kinds of baggage around the religion they grew up with. Um, but you know, we're also all, um, in this country living in a Judeo-Christian kind of paradigm. Um, so we all grow up with certain ideas and I think some of them are very subtle and implicit. Um, but we all have that context. And, um, yeah, I think for me, you know, Buddhism, it definitely is a religion, but the practice side is really emphasized. It's not about believing in anything, um, and it's non-theistic. So if you believe in God, great. If you don't believe in God, great. There's no real doctrine to subscribe to. Um, it's really based on your own experience and, you know, the Buddha was seen as a, as a sort of physician that was, um, who wanted to alleviate suffering, so, You know, the teachings are kind of about this practice of meditation and sitting down and, um, yeah, getting quiet, getting still with your own experience and um, being able to bear witness to it and, you know, seeing for yourself. And um, I don't think you're asked to take any teachings, um, you know, on blind faith. Um, It's really just about, you know, what is onward leading towards happiness and wholeness um, and well-being. And if it is, then great, you know, keep doing it. And if it's not, then put it down. So I, I find that really freeing. Um, in meditation, it's really, it validates, you know, um, your own experience. And I, I think, you know, like I said, the more um, I'm able to really show up for my own experience, that's inspiring to want to be able to do that for other people as well.
0: Mm-hmm. That's cool. Um, and so I also hear
1: that you are a vegetable gardener. <laughs> yeah, I have worked on a number of farms and love being outside and digging in the dirt and growing food. And um, yeah, it's a it's a difficult thing to do professionally. So um, yeah, now I'm mostly backyard gardener. But uh, yeah, really healing to dig in the dirt and um, yeah, just get back in touch with the body. And um, yeah, I have Tomatoes, cucumbers, basil, some melons growing right now. So that's a really fun thing to be able to do. I'm lucky to have space to be able to do it. Oh,
0: that's awesome. Mm-hmm. I keep wanting to start a garden, but I don't know where we would put it where the animals wouldn't eat at all. Mm-hmm. Um I remember when I was a kid uh going over to my grandfather's house, who I eventually um got the house next to him so I could live next door to him for um for almost, uh, for over, for over 10 years, hmm. no, just about 10, just about 10 years, um, before he passed. But, um, yeah, he had a vegetable garden down the back and, um, he had, you know, taken all this time and put up a fence and, um, you know, you're just sitting there and cause the, the groundhog kept, you know, Dang. coming into the garden. So he had like this fence and every time the oh. groundhog would come, he'd like refill the holes and right. <laughs> you know, try to prevent it. And um, we we're just sitting there in the backyard and, uh, you know, my mom was like, uh, she watched the groundhog hop up onto the fence, walk <laughs> across the fence and then hop in. She's like, uh, I didn't know groundhogs could walk across the fence. <laughs>
1: so I don't think that fence is keeping anybody out (laughs) yeah no it's it's good to start small I think I've learned I was really ambitious and I put in like five raised beds and I kind of knew what I was doing because I worked on farms but gardening is totally different because each plant is really important that it does well you can't just you know sacrifice 10 or 20 um but yeah there's all sorts of things I have like a spray for animals that just it's it's natural I think it's like I want to say it's like eucalyptus or something, but they don't like it. And um, and then there's also traps that you can send, like humane traps for gophers and things. So there, there's always, you know, it's a cool way of interacting with nature because the idea is that nature kind of thrives, um, you know, and proliferates on its own. So it's kind of just creating the right conditions and then it will do its thing, you know, that you're rather than you know, making the plants grow, you're really just setting up the right kind of situation so um yeah it's a cool sort of creative problem solving endeavor in that way
0: yeah it is it is fun and there's always surprises too in the garden yeah Uh, i I remember one year my grandfather planted um like really hot peppers like really hot peppers Mm. and he planted them next to the tomatoes (laughs)
1: <laughs> and
0: wherever the peppers had touched the tomatoes, like we picked off the tomatoes and ate them, and oh my gosh, they were so hot. yeah,
1: isn't that cool how that happens? Yeah, it's yeah. all the different like just permutations of nature are really fascinating, and I love how adaptable it is, and sometimes I found when I make certain mistakes, the plants will just sort of grow this way or that way or you know they they know how to adapt to change, so mm-hmm
0: mm-hmm. So um, prior to working for uh, Teaching Tolerance, uh, you were a teacher?
1: Yep, I did. Yep, I was a student teacher, and I was a one-on-one assistant and um, worked at after-school program. Um, so, yeah, did a number of things in the classroom. Okay, cool. And then what made you kind of shift over to Teaching Tolerance? Um, you know, I found it. So I loved the um, – the cooperating you know teacher relationship that I had in the school where I was doing my student teaching it was kind of like a semi-therapeutic democratic charter um, school sort of constructivist it was just sort of like a hippie very like open-ended you know you could come and go as you wanted and um, it was really small intimate environment Um, and even in that environment you know I found that students were going through a lot and they had so many emotional needs that were unmet. And I really felt like that those came first. And, you know, the kids who were able to just show up and be like, okay, I got my homework done, you know, I, have everything I need, let's go, let's learn, there was so much that went into that for them to be able to come into the classroom just feeling fine and able to learn and, you know, that I had taken for granted as, as a student as well, you know, like a quiet home, you know, kind of like a library-like environment to do homework and, you know, these stable, predictable meals and um, all these things. And so, you know, I when I was up there trying to teach um, annotated bibliographies or, you know, things like that there was a real disconnect you know between like this isn't this is this doesn't really to my direct need sort of trying to like force them into this structure um you know and tell them well this is what you need to learn because this is what adults say is important in order to be successful and there's all mm-hmm. kinds of ways to be successful and you know academic success is only one of of you know infinite number of um Ways, so yeah, I, I felt like that was really where my priorities were was supporting students emotionally and um, relationally, so that they could get to that place of like, okay, you know, maybe I I have all the support, and I'm able to you know pay attention and get to that next level of maybe intellectual engagement. Um, so yeah, I I, um, I think that's kind of what brought me to teaching tolerance is realizing. Um, that there are ways that, you know, schools can be a, a safe place for students to thrive and grow and have their identities be nurtured and supported. Um, but that takes work and that's kind of its own field. So that's a lot of what we do at Teaching Tolerance is, um, you know, hopefully provide some resources for teachers to be able to respond, not only respond to situations, but just create that supportive environment where all students can, can thrive.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully everybody takes a visit to um, the Teaching Tolerance website before the school year starts to kind of put yeah. some ideas in their toolbox to uh, get ready to teach for this year. Um, is there anything on the Teaching Tolerance website kind of geared towards like online, creating like a welcoming environment for like an online setting um, and meeting like the needs of our like diverse learners
1: yeah, so we try really hard to be as up to date as possible. So um, we're always, you know, keeping up with the news, and we rotate our homepage um, at least twice a week, I'd say. Um, oh wow. Yeah, so we have a, a articles just sort of consistently cycling in and out. Um, so right now, we are we, our articles are about Disability Pride Month, which is July. Um, And then, you know, um, we have a lot on teaching about race, racism, and police violence. Um, so an article about the weaponization of whiteness in classrooms. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we do have, uh, supporting students through coronavirus, um, which is, if you go to that page, um, there's a list of resources. It's very, um, pretty comprehensive, um, about, you know, rethinking family engagement during school closures, um, supporting students w- from a variety of backgrounds, whether they be Muslim or have learning disabilities, um, LGBTQ. Um, there's one about online teaching can be culturally responsive. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. So, you know, and we're always updating those resources and um, we're thinking a lot about what's, what educators are needing um, as we go back into the fall. And I think we're about to put out a survey um, that really just asks, you know, you all directly because you know the best. Um, so we're here to serve you. And um, yeah, the more we can find about find out about what you need, um, the better we're, we're able to help. Awesome.
0: Well, that's super fantastic. I know a lot of educators are going to be checking that out because... It is, it is overwhelming. And I think it's, you know, I mean, I know it's overwhelming for the students, but also the teachers who are, you know, at home, possibly managing their own families and their own kids online learning. Um, And then also trying to take everything that has traditionally been face to face and moving it to an online platform. And like you said before, you know, what, what you noticed in the classroom is that, Kids have a lot of social and emotional needs that need to get addressed before you can even get to that point, you know?
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Right. I know a lot with my students in the second half of this last year was talking about like how they're doing and, you know, how are we coping at home and what kinds of things are you doing to, you know, keep as sane as possible because it's, it's, these are difficult times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Definitely.
1: Yeah. I'm not I haven't been historically a big <laughs> advocate for technology, but I'm really appreciating it on a whole new level and able to connect to communities from, you know, all kinds of places and um so I'm I'm just really appreciating like and even being able to talk to you, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. All kinds yeah. of opportunities are cropping up and it's it's pretty neat how, you know, we we are relational beings and we wanna connect and um, we're going to find ways to do that. So, um, yeah, it's it's kind of encouraging in that way.
0: Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I hope it continues to keep getting better and hopefully somebody will come out with a vaccine soon so we can resume a slight normalcy. Right. Yeah, I hope for um, that too. But I think hopefully, I mean, I'm hoping at the end of all this that, um, you know, as one of my students said, um, that they had never truly appreciated just walking next to somebody you know down the hall or Mm -hmm. you know holding hands with somebody else or giving your teacher a hug like that those Mm. things are not possible and how much they will appreciate them once again once they're allowed to happen again so um you know I look forward to that day and I know a lot of people are looking forward to that day too
1: yeah me too and in the meantime, it is nice to, yeah, have a renewed appreciation for just seeing strangers out on the street. <laughs> yeah. Everybody in
0: my neighborhood walks. I mean, it could be like, mm-hmm. you know, it's been, you know, in the nineties and up to hundred degrees and they're still out there walking. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, just to get out and about, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Is nice. yeah. um, so are you at, um, working remotely now or have you guys been doing like an alternating schedule of like going into the office?
1: We are all remote. Yep. So everyone is working from home and, um, I think we will be at least to the end of the year, although I don't know that for sure. That's just my guess. Um, Mm -hmm. so yeah. And you know, our, our work can translate pretty easily, um, remotely. So that's, I'm lucky in that way, but yeah, you know, I, my heart goes out to, you know, all the young people and everyone you know with jobs that need to happen in person because um, that's mm-hmm. really difficult.
0: Yeah. I'll say. Um, I didn't have any more questions necessarily for you, but was there anything else that you'd
1: like to share? Um, I don't think so. Just thank you for doing this project and um, your creativity and everything you do for students. And, yeah, it's always – just on a personal level, heartening to see projects that support LGBTQ students. And um, yeah, I I think that is, you know, a healing thing for me too, to just know that, you know, there are caring educators out there that um, are looking after um, the queer and LGBTQ youth out there. So thank you.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, does that, when you were in like high school and college, did you find that did you have any queer LGBTQ educators that you knew of?
1: I did. Yeah. I had a great community of friends in college and college was great. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, high school was harder. Um, yeah, I did have two, I had a government teacher and an English teacher who were queer, but, um, and we did start a GSA. Um, oh, cool. feel like a supportive environment to really be fully out. You know, there's kind of, being out nominally nominally and then there's being able to be comfortable just being yourself. Um, Mm -hmm. so yeah, college was really when that, when that happened. So.
0: Yeah. I gotcha. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I went
1: to a a Catholic school, so Mm -hmm.
0: mm, it was a little, uh, challenging for that. I do remember having a cool social studies uh, teacher and I do remember writing, um, some sort of like report about, um, about gay marriage actually. Hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, which is kind of crazy cause it that was like a, such a long time ago, um, uh,
1: hmm. or something
0: about like, what was it? Like what, uh, God really thinks about homosexuals or
1: wow. something. And I was
0: basically like arguing my point that, you know, that we have the, the right to exist and, um, hmm. that it's normal. And, you know, and thankfully, I mean, like, you know, she was super cool about it and, yeah. you know, I didn't feel like oh I'm gonna get kicked out of school for writing about this topic so well that's good I'm glad,
1: I'm glad you <laughs> had that level of <laughs> support if you can call it that
0: <laughs> yeah um, but yeah that was about that was about it that was about the level of support that you got in a Catholic school so um, mm-hmm. but yeah so hopefully uh, you know times have changed and have progressed a lot more uh, now but yeah it definitely I think, the more that kids have support and, um, are comfortable, um, being who they are, um, is, is good.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: But, uh, thank you so much for, um, joining us today. And, um, for uh, those out there listening, um, you want to get the resources from, uh, it's teachingtolerance.org, correct? It's actually just tolerance.org. Okay. Just tolerance.org. Uh, go ahead and Google that and, um, check it out. And, uh, it sounds like you guys have loads of new stuff that is relevant. So I haven't, I haven't even checked out the new stuff yet.
1: Yeah. And if you want to contact me, um, you can either contact ttgrants at tolerance.org, or if you go to tolerance.org and then click on grants at the top, um, there's, about the second paragraph it says contact our grants coordinator um which is hyperlinked if you click on that that will open up an email that goes directly to me so
0: awesome all right so that's your job everybody get on that (laughs) um do some do some research and uh apply for some some cool grants too if you can for to help our our kids out there so
1: all right thanks thanks for having me
0: thank you for coming. The music featured at the start and end of our podcast is Work by Kevin MacLeod from Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by attribution 4.0 license.